Good morning. The Lord be with you. As well as a cold be with us, right? It was cold, yeah. It's good to be with everyone this morning. And whether you are here in the sanctuary or watching this recording, might you be blessed as we gather together. It is always good to be in the presence of God, um, to study God's word. And we're going to be looking at Micah chapter 4 today in our continuing series in the book of Micah. And before we do that, let us look to the Lord in prayer. Most gracious and loving God, we give you thanks and praise for who you are and who you are to us in Jesus Christ. How you have spoken, O Lord, through the prophets and through the apostles, through your servants and your communities in every generation. Your Holy Spirit, O Lord, has moved through your people to offer a witness to your self-revelation as you reveal yourself to be the faithful God, the one who loves us, the one who loves all of your creation, the one who is wise, the one who is good, the one who is compassionate, who is merciful and gracious. We come to you, O Lord, in your presence, eager, O Lord, to hear a word from you as we continue our study in the book of Micah. I pray your blessing, O Lord, upon my sisters in Christ here and all those, O Lord, who are watching this Bible study online. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would grant to us your wisdom and your understanding. Might you illuminate your word in our hearts, renew our minds. For we pray these things in the blessed name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen, amen. All right. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Micah chapter 4. Let us hear and receive the word of the Lord. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised up above the hills. People shall stream to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that he may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. The lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion now and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of daughter Zion, to you it shall come. The former dominion shall come, the sovereignty of daughter Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pangs have seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go forth from the city and camp in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be profaned and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter Zion, for I will make your horn iron and your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth the word of God for the people of God, holy wisdom, holy words. Thanks be to God. 
Well, as uh, Pastor Jack has been um, teaching from the book of Micah, and I think in, uh, he has placed I think the the book in its in its context. Right, Micah is one of the prophets, together with um, Amos and Hosea and Isaiah. These four prophets in the eighth century B.C. Uh, during the time uh, prior or leading up to uh, the upheaval, the ransacking of, of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah before the great exile that would take uh, the Israelites uh, to a very long uh, captivity, so-called so Babylonian captivity. And Micah, together with Amos, Hosea, and Isaiah, are serious about the worship of God, as, of course, God's people ought to. Um, right worship, right living, right believing, right? How is it that, that we, that they, that I, that you, can offer a right worship to God that is acceptable to the Lord, um, in which that right worship um, includes, of course, um, going to the temple and uh, learning about God's ways and the commandments and so on and so forth, but also living it out. Right? That's true religion. That's true worship. Um, how do we live it out? Do we care for those who are hungry? Do we care for uh, those who are lame, i.e., those who are invalids, those who are mute, those who are um, weak, those who are ill? those who are widows and orphans. In other words, those who are easily forgotten, easily neglected. And what we find in all of these, in all of these prophets that I named and in, and in others, um, and certainly Micah, a warning to God's people. They have not attended uh, to right worship and therefore right living. And God's um, anger, if you will, an anger that is a disciplinary anger, of course, his love is always steadfast. His love doesn't go away. Uh, but God is seriously upset because God knows that God's people ought to know better. Um, when God spoke again and again um, through Moses and through others, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor and the stranger as I love you. Um, God means business. God means love, because God is about love. And if we're not attending to loving God in every part of our lives and loving one another, then therefore, are we worshiping God in the right way? And so Micah's um, word of judgment, if you will, on behalf of God is to warn. And it's really a warning of repentance. Turn away. Uh, turn away from, uh, from that which you have a human heart, a tendency to do, neglect God's ways, neglect God's worship, neglect others, neglect those in the community, turn away from that. Turn back to God. Turn back to right worship and pay attention because God's disciplinary judgment, God's call to repentance is coming in the form of Assyrian armies who are on our doorstep or who are approaching. And so in Micah, um, what we find here, and I noted this in the outline, there are alternating patterns in these um, seven chapters of the book of Micah. Um, it begins in chapter 1 through chapter 2, a rebuke, a word of judgment, and then it goes to restoration. You will be restored. God will restore you. God will save. So it goes on a down to an up. And then it switches in chapter 3, back to a word of rebuke, a word of judgment. goes down again. And then our chapter 4, restoration. God will redeem. goes up again. And then, um, oh, and that word of restoration and salvation and rescue um, goes through chapter 5. And then chapter 6 through the beginning of chapter 7 is a, is a rebuke, again, downward. And then... The end of chapter 7, it goes back up again. It's sort of like a, the stock market, right? or, it's like, or like the weather patterns, uh, you know, up and down and up and down and up and down. And that's a pattern of Micah. 
Our chapter today, chapter four, is on that upswing that in contrast to chapter three, which is a really um, terrible and tragic word, it's a truthful word, this is what God will do. This is what God is going to do in a very real and palpable way, um, uh, in a terrible way, terrible from the, from the uh, perspective of, of, of the Israelites who will be on the receiving end um, of these uh, foreign armies in the form of the Assyrians and the Babylonians who will be coming in and invading uh, and destroying the temple and, as I said, taking them into exile, right? Chapter 4 is the opposite. Chapter 4, again, is on that upswing. This is what will happen. Um, you will be restored. God will save. And we'll go through that um, momentarily, verse by verse or uh, section by section. And so that's what is going on in, these, um, in this book and then in this uh, chapter 4. I want to invite you, whether you're here in the sanctuary or, or watching this recording, to take just a few seconds. I want you all to just take a breath, even under your masks. Relax yourself as much as you can in a few seconds. I want to invite you to imagine your favorite place. Your favorite place where there is blissful peace and harmony and beauty where there is a deep calm. Picture that place. Maybe there's one or two or a group of people that make that place special. Do you have it in your mind and heart? Perhaps it's a place in nature. Maybe it's with loved ones around a huge dining table. Maybe it's near your fireplace or in your flower garden. Take that image, take that place, and multiply it 10 billion times. You got it? It's beyond our thinking and our imagining. The scriptures have a word for something like that, and it's the word shalom. Have you heard of that word before, shalom? Sometimes you might see this on a, on a bumper sticker or a sign, or some places, some retreat centers are called shalom. There's a retreat center in the Philippines called the Shalom Center that welcomes guests. Shalom is oftentimes translated as peace. When you have shalom, you have peace. The fullness of that term is a blessed flourishing, um, universal flourishing where everything and everyone is flourishing, bountiful, generous goodness and beauty, peace and harmony, where there is no weeping, where there is no more crying, where there is no more war. We read that in the book of Revelation, right? A place in uh, the image and metaphors of in Revelation 21 and 22 where there's a tree of life and the, and the river and the, and the streets of gold and the, and the gates of, of, of uh, precious stones and pearls with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Micah chapter 4 is giving us a glimpse of God's vision of shalom. And as we're going to see as we um, go through each section of this chapter 4, a vision of there will be no more war. The instruments used for war and aggression will be transformed into implements and, war and, and tools for farming. Where nations who were erstwhile enemies will be flocking to Jerusalem to join Israel in worshiping the living God. I mean, imagine that. The prophet Isaiah will have some other images in terms of the, the, you know, where he talks about the lamb shall lie down with a lion, right? I mean, 
those type of images of, of war will be no more. Now, the question that we need to ask, and I think it's in one of your, uh, in one of your questions for reflection and discussion in so many words, is this wishful thinking? Is God's vision of shalom for Israel, for, bo for both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah then, and even in the succeeding generations that read and heard this word from Micah, is it something to be believed? Is it wishful thinking or is it truly a confession of faith that no, we, we hang our hopes in this God who has this vision, even though our present future circumstances seem to belie the vision and promise of God's shalom? That is a real question <clears throat> that God's people in every generation, including us in the 21st century on what date is today? January 26th, 2022. It is a right question to ask. And we join Micah's community in asking, we receive your word, God, but, it, but can it happen now? And so let us look at the succeeding um, uh, verses or the, or the sections now in chapter 4. <clears throat> In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised up above the hills. People shall stream to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that he may walk in his paths. How many of you have been to the Holy Land? Many of you, yeah, many of you, including yesterday at La Casa Glen, um, half of the um, room raised their hands. Those of you who have gone to Holy Land, even those who, uh, who haven't yet, um, and I hope that, uh, that uh, travel will allow um, you to go if you haven't or if, if you have to go again. I, I sure would like to go again. I was there in 2008 with a, a, a group of pastors. We spent three weeks there. And as you go to the Holy Land or when you traverse there <clears throat> and you're outside the, uh, the walls of Jerusalem, there is the Kidron Valley, right? It's right below and as you walk up, you see the walls of Jerusalem. And some of the Psalms, Psalm 120 through 134, these 15 Psalms called the Songs of Ascents, going up. I invite you to look at Psalm 120 through chapter 134. And when you read those, those Psalms, it's from the perspective of God's people as they are pilgrims going, walking, traveling up the valley or from the valley up towards the walls of Jerusalem and back then when the temple was still standing, both the first temple and then the second temple, because remember the first temple is gonna be destroyed as the Assyrians and Babylonians come, destroyed, they're, they're brought to Babylon to exile and then when they're restored, the second temple is built um, Nehemiah and Ezra are the writers who will chronicle their rebuilding of that second temple. And then that second temple is destroyed by the Roman uh, armies in 70 AD, right? So, but nevertheless, in both cases, as God's people went from the Kidron Valley upwards, they would see the city of David, Jerusalem, and its walls, and the temple. And there was a temple that rose up and you could see it, or they would see it, we don't see it now, and <clears throat> the, the, gold, the gold inlay on that temple and, uh, and the outer walls as the sun would shine on the doors and on the top of the temple, the sun shining would be so effervescent. Is that, is that the right word? Effervescent. It would, it would just, illumine and it would be essentially you know you're a traveling worshiper waiting and, and anticipating we're going to meet God in that place the one that 
the, Lord, the living God told our ancestors to build. This is the place that God will meet us. And the light shining, this is the, in the mind and heart of God's people. Oh, the face of God is shining on us, is blessing us. The God who is so holy and majestic, and we long to be in that place, and we're coming to meet the Lord. So these uh, first two verses... They will go up the mountain to the Lord's house. They will go up. That's the vision in the days to come. Now, a question yesterday from La Costa Glen was, does the days mean like, was Micah talking about, oh, in a few days? You know, was Micah talking to, to the community saying, yeah, in a few days, this is going to happen? And not necessarily, and it clearly, it clearly wasn't, right? It took many, many, many decades many, many, many decades for God's people to be, to be restored back um, and for that temple to be rebuilt. It was a few days ago that our family was just, we were driving around and on our Cirrus XM radio, one of our settings is the, uh, is the 80s, uh, music from the 80s. And I think, uh, in my humble opinion, that the 80s was the best decade of music. Maybe the end of the snow. <laughs> Julie McNeil is like, vehemently no, vehemently not. Maybe the end of the 70s and definitely the 80s for me, for me. Uh, my son Daniel, our eldest, has a, on his Spotify list, he has a whole assortment. He, he has like Sinatra, he has Motown, he has the 80s, he has the 90s, he has contemporary. I have a little bit of contemporary on my Spotify list, but I love the 80s. And I said to, um, to my family, you know, back in the day, I mean, I wish I was, you know, the adult that I am now, but make it the 80s, right? All that I have now, my career, et cetera, my family, I wish this was the 80s, back in the day. And I feel old by saying that, but in any case, back in the day. Well, back in the day, right, in my reference point, back in the day was, what, 32 years ago. That's back in the day. You see, so in the days to come doesn't mean, okay, next week. It can be, but rarely does the scripture say in the days to come, it's just in a few days. And so in the days to come, I mean, this is decades. This is going to happen. Maybe even centuries in the days to come. Why? Because in the Lord's perspective, right, in the Lord's perspective, a whole year, a whole century is but a day. A thousand years is but a day. But nevertheless, God's vision of, of shalom is here. People shall stream to it. Many nations will come. I mean, this is God's vision of shalom. Remember, universal flourishing all. That means Jews and Gentiles, all nations will flourish. All will be reconciled. That is God's vision for God's creation. The creation that God made. All will be brought to God's self, even though it doesn't look like it. And so, nations will come and they'll say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Imagine that. Even the Gentile nations will invite others. Come on, let's go. Let's go and worship the Lord. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now look at that. Shall go forth instruction. Now, when God's people go to the temple, when you and I come here in this sanctuary on Wednesdays, you all are here Wednesday, when you come here Saturday, uh, Sunday that is, on Sunday, whenever we come here to worship the Lord, what happens? We sing, we hear the songs, we pray together, we hear the prayers, you hear a word read from the pulpit. We're all instructed in the ways of God, right? And then the doors are flung open. We go out. We live our lives Sunday through Saturday. And then we come back again to hear another, thus saith the Lord, receiving instruction. It's similar to what Jesus said on the mountain when he was about to leave the disciples in Matthew 28, 16 through 20, where it says there that, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. 
and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age, he says, right? So even there, as the disciples are up in the mountain with Jesus, he teaches them and then says, go now. Go now and testify. Go now and tell people about me and what I have taught you. And so that same pattern of God's people coming together to meet God, meet God how? Through the instruction of his word, to receive it by faith as a, as a spirit brings his word into, into our hearts, into our minds, transforming it, uh, helping us to be reoriented as Pastor Jack preached this past Sunday, to reorient, to recalibrate us to the truths of God, to the love of God, and then we live it out again, and then we come back again for more instruction, go back out again, and so this same pattern is happening here. And so, likewise, that is the activity, the holy activity that happens when people come to Zion, when people come to the temple, to Jerusalem, to the city of David. And then verse 3, uh, 3 and 4, that section. He shall judge between many peoples and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. This text, particularly on this day, is a very unbelievable text. Because, and I don't know about you, but our daily prayer liturgy group that gathered this morning at 5.30, we prayed fervently for the people of Ukraine. Um, if you have been keeping in touch with the news on a daily basis, and this is, you know, not fake news. I mean, this is Russian troops amassing at the border of Ukraine. And I asked La Casa Glenn yesterday, can you imagine sharing this word to Ukrainians in Ukraine? Or the people in Ethiopia, we've been praying for them every single day as well, a more than year-long civil war that's been raging in Ethiopia, even now. A land where the Christian faith has been present for more than two millennia in Ethiopia. In Afghanistan, the protection of women and girls in that country, even in our own country, right? Great division and divide. But yet the vision is those implements of war, the swords will be turned to plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Choose, choose the implement and instrument of war and belligerence. Missiles, guns, Sticks, knives, words, or in our technological age, the press of the return button. A post on social media, an unkind word to a neighbor or stranger. It just goes on and on, right? The instruments of war that we human beings use against one another is so harmful to who we are created in the image of God, God's desire for us to be a peace-loving people, to be about loving and caring for one another. But yet, here is the shalom vision that Micah proclaims, the word that has been placed on his heart to share to God's people God will judge between many peoples and those instruments of war will be turned into what? Instruments of farming, plowshares, pruning hooks to be used not against one another but to, to tend to the ground that from the ground that God produces vegetation and food for all of us to enjoy, to be nourished and strengthened. That's the vision. 
And we have to ask, as likely with the Israelites, really? Is that the vision, God, that you have? Because the Assyrian army is coming, as we've heard. And what has happened to the northern kingdom, remember their kingdoms are split, northern kingdom Israel, capital city Samaria, southern kingdom Judah, capital city Jerusalem. What happened to Israel in the north and to Samaria, we heard it might be happening to us because you told us in the prior chapter it's going to happen to us. And so this chapter 4, and look at this, uh, this verse 4 here. And they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Where have we seen that image of someone who sits under a vine in peace? Do you remember that? A certain prophet who wanted to rest on his laurels, maybe in a hammock, under his vine. A certain stubborn prophet, hard-headed and heart-hearted, who was swallowed by a giant fish. Remember him? Yeah, Jonah. The proverbial prophet, so stubborn, who God instructs not once, not twice, but thrice, go to my people of Nineveh, the capital city of Babylon, the very city that, was, that held Israel captive, God instructs Jonah, go and tell them to repent, essentially saying that my love is for them too. And Jonah can't believe it. And Jonah, being the spokesperson of his community, his voice is like the mouthpiece of the community. He's speaking for himself and his community, like, really, God? No, I'm not going to go there. There is no way that I'm going to declare forgiveness and your love to the Ninevites. No way, no how. And he resists once, twice, thrice. And then he realizes, no escape from God. I'm going to go, right? He goes to, the, goes to the boat. The sailors see him, throws him overboard. Giant fish swallows him. He's in the belly of the fish. He spends the proverbial three days there. Remember, uh, three days is very key in the scripture. Something happens in three days, just like Jesus in the belly of the tomb. Stone rolls away in the third day. He rises Easter morning, etc. Jonah emerges from the, um, from the belly of the fish after the three days. He's awakened and illumined. He goes off to Nineveh, proclaims the word of repentance. God, my job is done. You told me to do what I did. Now I did it. Done. And then he goes. He sulks under, as the text says in the book of Jonah, he goes under that vine to rest sulking. And God comes to him in those final verses and says, why are you upset? In other words, Jonah, why are you limiting my love? God's love is not just for Jonah and for Jonah's community. It is for the Ninevites and for everyone. And so here in verse verse 4, they shall go under their own vines and under their own fig trees. Why? Because they're going to seek peace. But just as the word that came to Jonah when he was under his fig tree, God is not done with the nations. God always has a word for us, for the nations included. It's a word of reconciliation, a word of peace, a word of shalom. And it says, therefore, the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. He continues to speak. He continues to instruct. But look at verse 5. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Even though those nations who are going to come to Jerusalem have their own God, not the God of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Rachel, Esther, we have the living God, the God of the patriarchs and matriarchs. They have their own gods, but nevertheless, here it is, nevertheless, even though they follow their own ways, God will call them and reveal himself to them and draw them to himself. Okay, so now here it is, verse 6. 
In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. The lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion now and forevermore. What is he saying there in verses 6 and 7? He will attend to those who have been forgotten, the lame, those who are weak, those who can't walk, physically disabled, those who are mute, who cannot speak, who cannot hear, the deaf, the blind, orphans, widows, the hungry, the stranger. God will attend to them. He will attend to them by moving the hearts of God's people who were, who were and are as we are, we oftentimes neglect to share that love in tangible ways, right? God calls us again and again, um, uses um, God's people around us to remind us, don't forget, don't forget um, this person, this person, that community who's needing to be cared for and loved and to know that they're not alone. Verse 8, And you, O tower of the flock, hill of daughter Zion, to you it shall come, the former dominion shall come, the sovereignty of daughter Jerusalem. Tower of the flock, I put there in your outlines, a tower of the flock, oftentimes um, in, the, in the pasture, a tower would be erected in order to, to see the flock, the pasture, right? to have a bird's eye view. That tower was represented um, that uh, those who kept the pasture, the farmers, the shepherds, and so forth, care deeply about the flock. Right? And so this is an image. God, um, through God's people, will care for God's community. And now this final section, uh, verse 9 and 10. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished, that pangs have seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go forth from this city and camp in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. When he asks, when Micah asks, where is your king? Now, these prophets, all the prophets in the Old Testament, of course, were serving during the time of the kings. Um, and Micah um, served um, during the time of three kings. Now, recall that in the split kingdom, northern kingdom Israel, southern kingdom Judah, almost 100% of the kings of the northern kingdom were bad. The southern kingdom of Judah, 50% were good, 50% were bad. One of that 50% in Judah was King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was a righteous king. King Hezekiah was one who attended to right worship. He cared deeply about the temple. He cared deeply about his people. He cared deeply for God. He cared deeply for right worship and to care for um, those who were hungry and and, and lame and, and all the rest, orphans and widows. His predecessor, King Ahaz, and his other predecessors could care less. And they were described in scriptures as one whose heart was not in the Lord. But Hezekiah was. Regardless of who was serving on the throne, the throne itself and the occupant of the throne was an indication to God's people, God is still in control. Okay, so on this side of the, on this side of the uh, equation, if you will, on this side of the, of the scales, so long as there was a king that was installed in that throne, and hopefully that person would be uh, more good than bad, that that throne, that throne of David, um, was a, an indication, a guarantee, if you will, a visible guarantee that God was sovereign. God is still sovereign. God is ruling and reigning. God is with us. So when he asked, is there no king, is there no king in you? Well, on this side of the equation, Micah has been saying that the armies will be coming. The Assyrian king Sennacherib is coming. And so as Sennacherib, King Sennacherib is coming, so on this side, the question is, well, wait a minute, there's still a king sitting on the throne that should cancel out this side because there's a king. 
Well, Sennacherib is literally like coming. And so does it tilt it this way? That there's no one here? That the throne has been vacated and that's why we're now open to an invasion? I mean, that's what he's asking. But yet King Hezekiah was still on the throne. But nevertheless, the armies are still coming. And in fact, King Hezekiah tries to save his people because he has heard reports King Sennacherib and his armies are coming. He tries to make an alliance with Egypt. Egypt is not sure if if they want to get entangled. King Hezekiah gets some gold from the temple and and from the treasury to try to Um, to try to pay off Sennacherib, to essentially say, I'll give you money, just go away. King Sennacherib gets some of that gold, but comes anyway. And so Micah's question, where is your king? Or "Where where is our king? He's still there, but the armies are still coming. What he's saying there is that, again, even with such a righteous king as King Hezekiah, who does all the right things, who tries to do his level best to try to prevent the invasion, the invasion's still coming, but as I said, God's rule and reign and promise to care and love Israel and us does not depend upon who is in that, who is the occupant of that throne, because God rules and reigns forever regardless of who that human occupant is. And indeed, as we see there in verse 10, they will go forth from the city. They will be brought out from Jerusalem. They will go to Babylon. They will go to Babylon. But it says there at the end of verse 10, but there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. They will be redeemed. They will be redeemed. And indeed, they were restored. After many decades, after captivity, they are restored back to Jerusalem and they're able to rebuild the second temple and to, um, to flourish again until the next, uh, the next invasion and so forth from, uh, from the Roman Empire and another occupying force. And so in the final verses, now many nations are assembled against you saying, let her be profaned and let our eyes gaze upon Zion, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter Zion, for I will make your horn iron and your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. The ways and will of God are not fully understood and known by the nations nor by us. What Micah is essentially saying here is that the nations and sometimes us will say, ah, what is God doing? Where is God? Let her be profane and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. In other words, the nations will mock, but they don't know how God works and why God does what God does. And indeed, Israel will be brought back over and against what seemed like for for decades upon decades, will we ever go back? Or nations mocking them, aha, where is your living God who promised to to be with you? Well, God showed himself to be faithful and true that they eventually did get restored. Now, we as modern-day followers of Jesus Christ, modern-day worshipers of this same living God, the God of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Jacob and Rachel and Queen Esther, we ask likewise, Lord, we, I, don't understand your ways. Your promises oftentimes don't match what we experience in our own lives, in our loved ones, in the world around us. A second year of a health pandemic, wars that don't cease, and the list goes on and on. The testimony of scripture in every generation is that God's love abides, um, that God is faithful and true, nevertheless, and that indeed heaven on earth 
even though it doesn't feel or look like it. That's why we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why Pastor Jack has said it again and again, when we speak about eternal life, it's not life that begins after we expire from this life. Eternal life is now. Why? Because God is with us, is in us, is among us. When God promises to be with us, when Jesus said, I will be with you, God is not a half-hearted God. Did Jesus Christ get half-resurrected? No, he was fully resurrected. But even when he resurrected, Pontius Pilate was still on the throne. The high priest Caiaphas was still high priest. The Caesars were still in Rome when he resurrected. And do we say, okay, well, he resurrected. Was the powers and principalities and evil truly vanquished? Because they're still on the throne, but the Lord and Savior of the world is resurrected. And we say, yes, even though it doesn't look like it. Even though it doesn't feel like it, it doesn't look like it, even though the news convinces otherwise, no. Jesus was fully resurrected, notwithstanding what this side of the, of the, um, of the scale says. Yeah, Caesar was still there. Pharaoh was still there, right? When, when, uh, when Moses and the Israelites left Egypt, still there, but God is always there. Pharaoh died, Caesar died, God never dies. And so, no matter what the external or internal feelings and circumstances that we face, God's vision of shalom still remains. God's will is accomplished in every generation. Our eldest son, Daniel, uh, who is um, going to be returning back to college, he's been with us now for uh, a little over a month during this winter break. And he has said, and, and we said, or he has said, it's time to go back to college. It's time, you know, he worked full time, but then he's getting bored. I said, yeah, it is time. We love you, but it's time. So hopefully, Lord willing, if flights cooperate and so forth on Saturday, he'll be headed back. And then he'll be back in May um, for a brief time. And then he's going to the Washington, D.C. program. Davidson College accepted him to the Washington, D.C. program. He'll spend two months in the summer. Uh, in D.C., interning and taking a class on global politics, be back home for three weeks, and then go back to school to start his sophomore year in college um, come August, right, very quickly. He's a political science major, and he's, uh, he's discerning and praying what that might mean, whether law school or graduate school or so forth, maybe the foreign service. When he was writing his essay, college essay for admission, he said, um, you know, maybe he'd like to uh, be in the Foreign Service, serve in the State Department. And we thought about that, and he thought about that. Imagine the generations of diplomats who have put their families through so much, traveling the world, making negotiations, trying to bring peace, trying to bring some sense of of non-aggression, but yet there's still wars. And we wonder, was there labors for naught? We think of the millions of women and men who gave and sacrificed their lives, who have served in the armed forces very courageously and bravely. We say, was their efforts for naught? When I was called to be a pastor many, many years ago, and still do, some people say, why did you want to become a pastor? It's such a, you know, people are still sinful. The world is not better. I said, no, it is. It is, it is hard. It is, you know, people are still sinful as I am. But I've been called. And I can do no other, right, but to respond to God's call and to share God's word and to trust that God will bring transformation and deliverance, salvation, and all the rest. In every generation, every generation, God calls individuals and people to take on the mantle in hopes that God's shalom will emerge in some small ways and big ways. We do our, our, our little part so that God's vision of shalom, the reality of it, will emerge in places here and there in the midst of, not instead of, not in place of, but in the midst of wars that will continue, God forbid, pandemics, another illness, another death, another cause of sadness. 
But in the midst of that is the word of hope that continues. A people of God who prays. A people of God who loves. A people of God who forgives. A people of God who worships. A people of God who summons the name of the Lord our God who made heaven and earth. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Amen. Let us, actually, no, not let us, wait first. <laughs> Q&A, any, any, any responses? I was ready to close us in prayer, and I think we have some time. Just a few minutes, if anyone would like to come up to the microphone to offer any um, responses or if there's any uh, questions that anyone has. Oh. Um, in chapter, not chapter, in verse 6, it talks about in that day, which I would assume is like a messianic prediction of, mm. of the coming of their mm. Messiah. Could that also be interpreted then as the return of Christ? And the second question, a part of that, is that in that verse it says, for the, you know, the lame, the poor, the lame, the widows, that, but it also says, and those that I brought to grief. How would you interpret that? Those that I brought to grief? And my, my NIV says those that have brought to grief. Is that the one? Uh, so verse 6 and 7? Verse 6, yeah. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame and in gather that, those. In, in that day, I interpret to mean like a prediction of the, the coming of the, the Jewish Messiah, which would be Jesus. And then we as Christians look at that as the second coming. Is that correct? It is in those multiple ways, right? Each, uh, each generation. So the immediate, the immediate, as Mike is writing this, the immediate um, fulfillment of this is comes decades later after he writes it when they're restored. So we shouldn't. We sh he's he's looking at that as the, the Assyrians coming and taking them to Babylon. So we should not interpret that as no, no. no. So so when Micah writes this verse six and seven, yeah. in that day says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, etc. The immediate fulfillment or the imminent fulfillment, imminent now in scripture doesn't mean, oh, tomorrow, right, right. right? The imminent fulfillment of that verse six and seven is the restoration of the Israelites after the exile. Okay. So it's like decades after. So when he writes this, the captivity hasn't happened yet. So, and I so they will be brought to captivity, right, in Babylon, spend many decades in exile, and then come back. And so he's referring to that day when God will restore them back to Jerusalem after that exile. I see. So I shouldn't take that to mean the Messiah, like in Christ. They're, they're just talking pretty concretely about decades later that they'll be restored. Right. So the immediate of, of what he's talking about is the restoration of the exile now. Okay. The trick is, is that when people after the exile, like us, or after the exile, how do we read that? Exactly. And it works in a couple ways. One is, it is referring back to history that we weren't a part of necessarily, right? Like, okay, thanks be to God, God has a track record, right? That we can look back and say, okay, yeah, God did deliver them. God did gather and assemble the lame, etc., restoring them back. The Jewish and Christian theology of memory, uh, and pardon my, uh, I'm going to use the Greek term anamnesis, from which we get the term amnesia, memory. The understanding of the Judeo-Christian use of memory is that it's not only a recounting or recalling of the past, but it's also by the working of the Spirit of the Lord, that past event is brought to the present for us and us with them. It's as if that we were there with them and they with us. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, that's why the black spirituals, you know, when they sing, uh, I'm going to ride in the chariot in the morning, Lord. I'm going to ride in the chariot in the morning, Lord. They're referring to Elijah and the chariot. And it's like we were with Elijah, and Elijah's with us, and we're in the chariot with him. And so likewise, this, this is not just for, it includes recounting a track record of God's faithfulness in restoring God's people as it's recounted here. And it is as if, and in reality, we are with them and they with us. This is a promise as well. Um, for, uh, for first century Christians who were with Jesus and who came after uh, Jesus ascended, like, oh yeah, that's also about Jesus because he attended to the lame, he attended to the remnant, etc. And then now for us, after Jesus' ascension, fast forward 21st century, we can look back as with all of the generations of God's people to say, yes, that's true, and it's true for us as well. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Cool. Thanks. Yeah.
Now, why is that, and let me just add one more thing, why is that important? Because the Old Testament is not just dead history. It is not just a history book like, oh yeah, that was a wonderful thing. Because otherwise, the New Testament, we could relegate as, oh yeah, that's history. It's a good history book. No, that's why it's called the living faith. And that's the power of anamnesis, the power of memory. Um, this is not just psychological memory. Oh, it's a wonderful thing, family of origin stuff and so forth. Our faith is a living faith because God is a living God. Hey, when uh, we talk about, I hear you and Jack both say that heaven is here now. I really have trouble, like I know in our, our Lord's Prayer we say, you know, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I think we're supposed to, you know. But then when I hear you say, um, even though it doesn't look like it or it doesn't feel like it in this, I don't know, I get a little lost because how, I don't feel like heaven is here now. Yes. And I join you with that. I join you with that. And um, the alternating pattern in Micah, remember this up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. Micah and all the prophets are very realistic. Our God is a realistic God. He takes life as it is, as we experience it. It's this and that, this and that. And why is it that pattern? This is going to answer your question. Why is it that pattern? We can't always be on the up. Because if we're always in the up, living in a 24-hour, 24-7, up, 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 happy, 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 shalom, 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 we're either dead and or we will take God's love for granted, right? All happy, all secure, we're in our, we're, we're, we're napping under the vine, we're just sort of relaxing and chillaxing, who cares about the hungry, et cetera, who cares about those who are needy, et cetera, we're all relaxing. But we also can't just stay in the valley, in the downward part. Why? We'll be in despair. We'll be um, feeling always helpless and hopeless. We're going to be paralyzed. And so Micah goes this way and that way because that's how our life is. And that's why the gift of faith is so important. The gift of faith is not something that we come up with. It's not something that we can develop or manufacture. There's no supply chain for faith. There's no shortage of a supply chain for faith. That's why faith is such a critical gift that God gives. It trains our hearts and our minds to discern. Now, that's very key, to discern, to perceive, to understand. When Jesus and the prophets say, behold, I like that term, behold, behold. John the baptizer says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does the term behold mean? It means not just look, but discern, perceive. The terms perceive and discern means look under the patina, the patina of what you see because there's more than meets the eye. And that's why faith is there. Faith is that which will keep us actively waiting and engaged the spirit of the living God who trains our hearts and minds that in the midst of all the all the challenges and sufferings and, and tribulations and so on and so forth, that God is actively still. And that's why faith is such a critical piece. Faith, hope, and love, right? Faith trains our hearts, helps us to discern and perceive. Hope helps us to live another day, crowned with love, knowing that we are not forgotten. God has our backs. And so... Yeah, eternal life is now, the fullness of which we'll experience uh, when we are in the very eternal presence, if you will, of God. Now, the second and last part to that is the reason we know that heaven is here, even though it doesn't feel like it, is because when Jesus says, I am with you, is he, is he with us? When he says he will be with us, when the Spirit, when the Holy Spirit says, when he says the Spirit, my Spirit will comfort you, the Spirit will abide with us, um, that he is the vine, we are the branches, and we abide in him. Is he like our half and half creamer, only half? He's only half with us? No. He is fully with us. It's, it's the same um, logic as, was he half crucified? No. Fully crucified. Was he half resurrected? 
No, he was fully resurrected. Was he half ascended? No, he was fully ascended. Is he half with us? No, he's fully with us. And so eternal life is with us and faith enables us to perceive it. And that's why nourishing faith, coming together to be reminded of that and then going out again, that's why we always need to congregate together in worship and in study of scriptures because that's what recharges the faith, recalibrates the faith, uh, retunes the faith. Uh, in order for our hearts to continually be anchored uh, to the eyes and heart of God. Yes. Heaven in us and heaven among us as well. All right, any others? Let's now uh, draw our hearts together in our closing prayer. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we thank you. We thank you for your love for us for your wisdom, O Lord, that is beyond our thinking and our imagining, your vision for your creation of shalom, that all would flourish to the glory of God. Gracious God, even as we experience both in our personal life and in the world around us, great challenges, great upheaval, gracious God, we pray that you would bring healing to the nations, that you would bring healing to us, that you would accompany us, that you would let us know that you have never, never let us go, but your love is steadfast. Your love is unfailing and, un and unending. Gracious God, might you call us and in every generation call your people um, as you call us, O oh Lord, to be a part of your transformative justice, to be about, O oh Lord, your shalom vision for the world and even our slice of the world, that we would offer, O oh Lord, that witness of that hope that we have in you and your son Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you everyone and God bless.